Well, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. We'll be looking at verse 6 today, one that we have doubtless read many a time or heard many a time, if you're a parent especially, as we continue our series that I've titled, Ooh, So Close!, as we look at various Bible verses that have either been commonly misunderstood or misapplied. And this is one of those that I'll admit when I was beginning this series, I didn't think that this would have been in the list. Uh, But I remember, I think I had put out on, I forget which social media platform now, uh, commonly misunderstood verses, and this was one of the suggestions. So I thought we would go ahead and tackle this one together. So listen carefully, for this is God's word. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. It says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall abide forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached to you. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our service and sermon today. Oh Jesus, we do thank you for this passage that we have here. Lord, I pray that we would hear what it has to tell us, what it doesn't have to tell us, and let us love you all the more for having understood it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed how many things are guaranteed on television these days? When you see any commercial, anything is always a satisfaction guarantee. And it's getting harder and harder for companies to stand out for how just strong their guarantee was. I remember seeing an ad for a shake weight that offered an ironclad guarantee. I'm not sure how, but that's what they do, is we want to make sure that we are not risking anything. That if we're going to put our hard-earned money or time into something, there's going to be a guarantee that this is going to be worth our effort. And I think that there is, if there is anything that we would like a guarantee on, it would be how our children and our grandchildren are going to turn out. Is there anything that we put more effort into, more of ourselves into, than our children? We want some sort of formula that we can ensure that they're going to turn out correctly. So many will look to this verse and believe that they've found it. The ha! Train up the child, and this is how it's going to be. If you don't train up the child, well, that's your fault. If the child turns out poorly, and if it turns out great, well, that's all you, man. This is what we like to see out of these verses. But that's not what we see out of Proverbs 22.6. This has been a source of pain for some parents who haven't understood it, who sit in a pastor's office and say, I did everything I knew to do. And they still didn't turn out the way that I wanted or the way that they should have turned out. I thought it said that if I trained them up in the way he should go, they won't depart from it. This is not how my life has turned out. We have to be very careful when we evaluate a Bible verse in relation to our life experience. We don't want to look at a Bible verse and say it's like, well, it didn't work out for me, so the Bible must be wrong. We can't do that. We cannot interpret the Bible on the basis of our own life experience. Instead, we need to interpret the Bible using the Bible. 
That's what we're going to talk about today. As we're in the midst of our um, series, we've been looking at how it is that we correctly interpret the Bible. Last week, we looked at the three most important words in all biblical interpretation, which were context. Very good. Context, context, context. Thank you, Jim. Good job. Gold star. Yes, it was, we needed to keep in mind three different contexts. The context of the passage, needed to make sure that we read the verse in light of the chapter that's around it, preferably the chapters before and after. We need to keep in, con- in mind the context of the people. How did the original audience understand what was being said to them? And finally, the context of the prose. How is this being written? What are the expectations that the genre is giving to us, and how should we read it? Well, we're going to continue this today, and you will see some of those concepts that we talked about last week are going to apply here as we look at Proverbs 22. So, as we get started on our passage, you'll see your two points on your outline at the back of the prayer guide. The first point is that God never contradicts himself. God never contradicts himself. And then verse two, God call, or point two, God calls us to train our children for his glory. We'll emphasize that as we go along. So the first point is God never contradicts himself. This is going to be the, the, how we interpret the Bible. This is going to be our big point that we're going to look at. One of the very important things when we're coming to scriptures to make sure that we're not interpreting this from our own perspective and saying it's like, okay, well, what does a male American growing up in the 2000s, how, how do I bring to this passage? No, 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 no. We leave all of that behind. How does the Bible interpret the Bible? Theologians, whenever they come up with something important, we have to slap a label on it because somebody needs a PhD. And the label that we have put on this concept of, the, of God never contradicts himself is called the analogy of faith. What this is saying, the analogy of faith is just a fancy way of saying we need to keep the entire Bible in mind when we're interpreting any one verse. God doesn't contradict himself, meaning God doesn't say one thing over here and then says the opposite over here. We do that because we either don't remember what we said over here or we're just inconsistent and we don't realize that what we're doing, what we're saying over here doesn't match up with what we're saying over here. God's not subject to those limitations. God doesn't forget what he said on page three that contradicts what's said on page 300. He doesn't do that because he's God. So when we look at the Bible and we see it's like, huh, this is something of a verse that you could interpret this a couple different ways. Like, all right, is there another verse in the Bible that speaks with clarity on that? So like, okay, it's really clear what he's saying over here. It's like, all right, well, then this is what he's saying over here then. It's not going to contradict itself. For example, when we look at, when we, we were studying Ephesians chapter 2 a while back, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you are saved through faith. And when we get over into James, though, in the book of James, it talks about, it says, we are not saved by grace, but we are saved through works. We think, what? How did we miss that? How did that get through editing? Well, what's it saying here is when we look at this, it's like, okay. The rest of the Bible is exceedingly clear. Old Testament, New Testament, saved by grace. Whole book of Galatians dedicated to it. Ephesians, Romans 4, all over the Bible, it's by grace. So how are we supposed to look at James? We keep the whole rest of the Bible in context. And indeed, as we'll see, what James is actually talking about is your your faith is displayed 
by works, not determined by works. That's what James is addressing. And if you were to look at the context there, you would see that's what he's talking about. So, he, so we don't have competing Bible passages and saying, it's like, well, this one's more important than that one, and try to slam the two of them together. Because no, we're reading the rest of the Bible in light of these two things. Ephesians reminds us that we don't get to take any credit for salvation. But James reminds us that there is a life we have been called to. It's a good one. There are expectations for us. Keeps both of this in mind. Now we don't have to try to bring our own balance to the Bible. The Bible is balanced. Just need to read it in its entirety. And that's what we're talking about when we look at the entire Bible and the context that's therein. Now, when we keep the whole context of the Bible in mind, let's, how does this help us in Proverbs 22.6? So here, again, we see this seeming promise that if you put in the work, if you train up your child the way he should go, he's not going to fall from it even when he's old. Now, all of us at least know someone who it seems like that didn't work out for them. And as I said earlier, we don't get to take our life experiences and use them as the litmus test for truth. As one of my seminary professors said, we don't get to stand over the Bible and separate wheat from chaff. We don't get to do that. We stand underneath the Bible, and that's what tells us what we do. So if we were to look at this passage itself, how does the rest of the Bible look at this? And what we'll see is that we see many parents who either did or did not follow this passage, and it didn't turn out this way. Ironically, Solomon himself, when he was old, departed from the way. He married all of these foreign women, and his heart was turned to these other gods. And it was, in fact, the beginning of the end for the united kingdom of Israel. And it says, actually, later on in... Um, 1 Kings 11.40, once he found out that the kingdom was going to be split, he tried to kill the guy that was going to be the new king. It's like, Solomon, what happened? Do we get to take the psychologist's approach and blame his father? Blame David? Well, I mean, Absalom didn't turn out so well. But the Bible tells us that David followed God wholeheartedly. At least be some sort of a candidate for being a good dad. But we see throughout the rest of Scripture, we see also terrible parents who produced good kids. Like there is a, we don't have time to look at it in its entirety, but in 2 Kings 21, 19 through 26, we see King, King Amon, he was a despicable person. He didn't do basically anything correct. And basically all that he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know who his son was? Josiah, whom God himself called the greatest king since David who led all these reforms into the nation's worship. He didn't train up his child in the fear of the Lord. I don't think he trained up anything in the fear of the Lord. But yet here we see terrible parents produce good kids. We've also seen parents produce two different kinds of kids. From Adam and Eve came both Cain and Abel, a worshiper and a murderer from the same parents. Reuben and Joseph came from the same father. So when we look at the rest of this biblical data, we can see it's like, okay, even in the Bible, even from the person who wrote this proverb, 
we can see this is not an ironclad promise. And as we look actually closer at the book of Proverbs, Proverbs was never promising you that. Proverbs was never saying, if you do X, you will always find Y. We can actually see Proverbs demonstrating it, that itself, in uh, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Here it says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Then verse 5, the very next sentence, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That seems like opposite commands here. Well, what are we supposed to do? Answer him or not? And Proverbs says, well, sometimes. Depends on the situation. Because what Proverbs is trying to do is to lay out for you, this is what a wise life looks like. Here's what we're called to live. One scholar put it this way. Proverbs has an optimistic air about parents and tradition, but that should not lead readers to regard the book as naive or idealistic. A closer reading of the book reveals its unapologetic realism. And he says at a later point, the book does not solve the problem of contradictions in life. Instead, it leaves this problem to the limits of human understanding, calling us away from pragmatism and despair to an ethics grounded in faith, providence, and hope. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying Proverbs is not trying to unfold every mystery of the universe that you could encounter. If it tried, the book would be endless. There'd be no way it could come up with a specific application for absolutely every scenario you'll come across in life. And what it's telling you is uh, there will be times you will follow the path and this won't work the way you think it will. The whole book of Job is dedicated to that idea. But what Proverbs is telling you is there is a limit to how far your understanding goes. The universe is way bigger than you. And that's basically what Job ends on. Job asks for 30-some chapters, Why is this happening to me, God? You need to answer for why my life has turned out this way. And the end of the book is God saying, No, I don't. I am God, and you are not. The world's bigger than you. I love the song we chose for offertory. It was perfect. Who has offered counsel to the Lord? Answer expectation? No one. But what Proverbs does call us to do, that's why I love that last sentence. We're going to unpack this from that scholar. His name, his name is uh, Patrick O'Dowd. would recommend him. It says it calls us away from pragmatism and despair. Calling us away from step one, step two, step three, get what you want. Calling us away from that. Calling us away from despair as well when step one, step two, step three didn't work out the way you wanted it to. But it's instead calling us to an ethics, a way of life, a system of morality, a compass of faith, providence, and hope. This is what it's calling us to do. When we live out the wisdom that God has left for us here, we do so in faith, in trust that he's leading us in the correct direction. There are some things here in Proverbs that was like, ah, that seems really hard. 
doesn't seem like something that gets you ahead in life. But what he's calling us to do is says, this is what wisdom looks like. I know that's not what the rest of the world looks like. That's kind of the idea. But he's calling us towards something where we trust him, even when, these, when the circumstances in our life don't make sense. That was the takeaway from Job. Job was a faithful man. God said so himself. That's not the opinion as if Job wrote the book himself. That's God saying, this is my good servant. Takes him through everything being lost. Tells him, I don't have to tell you why. And then restores it all. Job never finds out why he had to go through all that. But it's trusting in him. Job never sinned with his mouth. And that's what he calls us to do. That's what trust looks like. There is no trusting when you can see everything. You don't have to trust it when you can see it all. Trust and faith comes in when you can't see it. So, after all of that, long introduction. Let's look at our verse, Proverbs 22, 6. What is this telling us to do? So, if we have found out that we're called to train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And I have just spent the last 17 minutes and 36 seconds telling you why that is not a promise. You can train up the child in the way he should go, and maybe he won't stay on the path. So what do we do? Do we throw up our hands and say, well, I guess nothing works. I'm never going to be able to make my kid turn out the way that I want to. Might as well give up. If that's our thought, we're being stuck in pragmatism and despair again. God actually calls us to something a lot higher than that as we look on. There is a sense in which Proverbs is telling us, yes, if you train up your child, in general, this is how it goes. Children, in general, turn out the way that they have been trained, good or good, bad or otherwise. But what this is telling us is that we need to train And we need to teach our children. This is not so much a promise as it is a prodding. Go train your children in the way that they should go. This is all over the Bible. Deuteronomy 6-7 tells us we're to teach our children diligently. Deuteronomy 6-7. Psalm 78, verses 6 and 7 tells us to teach our coming generation about the works of the Lord. Included in that, more commands to do this. Psalm 102, 18. Deuteronomy 4, 9. Deuteronomy 11, 19. Exodus 12, 26-27. Joshua 4, 6. And that's just the Old Testament. When we were to get into the New Testament, we see that Ephesians 6, 4, Colossians 3, and Jesus' own interaction with children. God cares about the next generation and cares that we are the ones to inform them about who he is. If we don't, somebody will. I've heard many a times, if you are not catechizing your children, this is another fancy way of saying teach them, someone is going to catechize your children. But it may not be the catechism you want. The world is more than happy to teach your children and to train them up in their ways. More than happy to do that. We should have this focus. And yes, there are 
wonderful things that we see here in our church that are helpful to the children. We should take advantage of that. Sunday school is a precious gift. Our wonder camp that's, uh, that's coming up, extremely helpful. And all of these things are supplements and aids to you. But none of these things can replace you, dear parent. Do you know why? Because your children only get to observe us for an hour or two a week. The best way to understand what a transformed life in Christ looks like is them watching you. Seeing how you live in the day-to-day. What does it look like to cook a dinner to the glory of God? I don't get to show that. Your Sunday school teachers don't get to show that. You guys get to show that. What does it look like to parent to the glory of God? That's for you. That's as we turn to our second point. I think you might be able to see where, where this is going. And point number two, why do we train our children? We do it for God's glory. How do we glorify God? By doing what he says. And then trust him with the result. And that's the hard part. We want to train up our children sometimes in our worst of moments. We want to train up our children so we look better. We don't want to be embarrassed when they're throwing a fit at Walmart. We'd like to avoid that so we train them at home. You have to listen to dad. So the cashier at Publix doesn't call you a mean dad and you won't buy a balloon for him. Not that that's happened. So in our worst of moments, we want to train them up for our glory. In our less than worst moments, we want to train them up for their glory. I want you to be safe. I want you to be a success. Even when we can remove ourselves from the equation, we want to train up our children so they have a safe life. So they have a good life. That's not the motivation either. That's hard. The reason why we train up our children is for God's glory. I'm teaching you this because God told me to. I'm training you in this way because God has, wants you to do this. Because God wants me to do this. And I'm willing to leave the results up to him. Even if my children go and do things that I really wish that they wouldn't. Lord, I've done what I can. I've been obedient to that call. And now I leave them in your hands. That's what operating from an ethics of hope looks like. Saying, Lord, I'm leaving them in your hands. I'm leaving them in your providence. Those who have been around a while to see their child go away from the path, but then are gloriously called back. And we see how the Lord took them through this really hard shortcut to bring them back to this point. And then the Lord hauls off and uses that terrible thing that happened to them for his glory. I don't want my son to have to go through hardship. I really don't. But I have to trust the Lord that wherever he takes my son, that that's where he's supposed to go. That he will ultimately use that for his glory. Even if I never get to live long enough to see my son follow after Christ, I trust that the Lord will be gracious and good. But my son doesn't belong to me. This promise doesn't belong to me. These are the orders from on high. And I will implement them 
whether it, quote-unquote, works or not. That's the whole of the Christian life, isn't it? Tells us to be generous with our funds in a time of economic scarcity. That doesn't make sense. Poured resources, our world tells us. The Bible tells us opposite. We believe him for that. Even when those resources, even by the very act of giving these things away, we have less. It's the same thing here with parenting. We train them up. And we let God take care of that. So what's our takeaway? We recognize that while God gives us clear directions for what to do with our children, we must not think that this will be a magic formula to ensure that our children turn out a certain way. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't train them, because not training them is to be disobedient. But it does mean that we don't train them with the idea that if we've done that, God owes us good kids. We train them for God's glory, not ours, not theirs, and not anyone except God's. That's Proverbs 22.6. Now, I don't know of a single parent who doesn't look back on their child rearing with some degree of regret. All of us can look back and see, it's like, I could have handled this better if I just said that, or maybe if I had not done this thing, maybe. All of us look back with regret especially if the child doesn't turn out the way that we think. Now, none of us have done this perfectly. And all of us, whether you have been a perfect parent or not, to adapt a quote from John Piper, you have to rely on the same grace from God, whether you are a perfect parent or the worst parent in the world. We lean on God's grace We lean on the gospel because guess what? Jesus died for bad parenting too. Have you been a bad parent? Do you look back with regret on how you've raised your children? Jesus can forgive you. Jesus is for you too, mom and dad. Hope you know that. He can forgive bad parenting. You can be reconciled to God. And if this lands with you today, saying it's like, you know, there are a lot of things I actually regret about my parenting. I didn't raise them for God's glory. I raised them for me. Well, then it's time to be reconciled to God. Jesus is open to you. He'll take you and embrace you just as much as those children that we read about in Mark 10. He'll take you on his knee. He'll lay his hand on you and will bless you. And forgive you of all of your sins because he died for that. And once you've done that, it may be time to repent and go to children and to apologize. This doesn't mean that just because we have apologized that decades of hurt magically go away. But it's at least the starting point. Maybe years of walking out and demonstrating what a good Christian looks like. Who is a repenting person. One that doesn't have it all together. So maybe if you are beyond the ability to directly control your children anymore because they're out of the house and adults and have children of their own, instead be the parent that you were always supposed to be, which is one who's following after Jesus, 
show what a life transformed by Christ looked like. And maybe, just maybe, they'll return to the path as well. Close with a quote from our dear O'Dowd. He says, like children, parents are prone to error. And so God puts children, parents, and others on notice that true wisdom is found only in the tradition of those who fear the Lord. Proverbs 1.7. One cannot have wisdom or society without tradition, but not every tradition counts. And thus, heeding wisdom's call is a task that never ceases. What he's saying here is we're called to fear the Lord. That's our call. That's our path. And it's a path that never ceases. It's one that we're always on. Some faster, some slower. I read a story last night. A man by the name of Cliff Young. Those of you who are into Australian ultra marathoning, you might have heard of him. He was a 61-year-old potato farmer who had signed up for the ultra-marathon that would would run between Melbourne and Sydney, a distance of over 540 miles. He showed up on race day in stark contrast to everyone else wearing sleek clothing and new shoes, wearing his long pants, his cotton shirt, and his work boots, saying he was used to running after sheep when he was younger, and this is how he trained. Well, the starting gun went off. Everyone zoomed ahead. Mr. Cliff began what was generously described as a shuffle down the track and fell enormously behind. Well, at the beginning of the first night, his trainer, who was running with him, had accidentally set the alarm clock incorrectly so that he would only have two hours of sleep that night. And as soon as the alarm clock went off, he was up and going before he even realized it was still dark and kept his shuffle going and realized that perhaps if he was to continue at this pace without sleeping, he might just be able to finish this race. And so he did and ran for five days. No sleeping, no stopping what became to be known as the Cliff Young Shuffle for 500 miles. Not only did he finish the race, he won the race because everybody else slept at night. And not only did he win the race, but he shattered the record by two full days. He described himself as the tortoise of the race. It was a slow pace, but it was in one direction. That's what Proverbs calls us to do. Plodding along the road while everybody else is sprinting along doesn't seem like a strategy for success. But what made it impressive is that he continued on his path. He knew this was the correct way to go. And sure enough, that was how it worked. In fact, three other winners of that ultramarathon in coming years used this same technique to win this race. That's what it looks like to pursue after the wisdom of God. It's not flashy. It's not fast. But it never ceases. 
So applaud for God, dear Christian. Keep going. He calls us to this wisdom. Whether we feel like we're winning the race or not, this is the the race, this is the pace that God has called us to run. So run with it. And maybe, just maybe, by the grace of God, your children will follow with you. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in bringing us along, for transforming our own hearts when it seemed like we, not seemed, when we were far from you. You've called us to yourself. And now we tell this same story to our children. I pray that you would help us to run this race. And I pray that you would help us to show the grace that you have given to us in our lives. And help us to pass this on to our children. Lord, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.